Welcome to the Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Lipsky of Break of Day Capital. I talk to leading experts to discuss a wide range of subjects to educate investors on best-in-class practices to build legacy wealth and positively impact communities. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Lipsky with Break of Day Capital. Be sure to join our Facebook group, Asset Management Mastery, where we have a great community of thousands of like-minded individuals sharing resources and best practices. Choosing the right insurance coverage for multifamily properties isn't that complicated, if you know who to talk to. At the Garzella Group, we're uniquely qualified to help you navigate the range of policy choices you have, and we're committed to saving you 30% in the process. We do intensive market research and have nationwide relationships, so we can find coverage other insurance brokers simply can't. We should talk. Go to quotenow.biz and we'll start the conversation. Today on the podcast, we have Tom Zeeb. Tom works with real estate investors of all levels to get their businesses built or rebuilt correctly so that their personal goals and lifestyle stays at the center of everything they do. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Can you start by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and more about what you do? Sure. Hey, Gary, thanks for having me. I'm a real estate investor who focuses on marketing, negotiation, and contracts and deal control systems to get paid. I do a little rehab. I do some rentals. But I love wholesaling because it fits me like a glove, fits my personality like a glove. So I like to quick in and out on a deal. And I found that I tend to focus on that just to build up money to uh, invest in whatever I want and maintain a great lifestyle. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we haven't had much uh, wholesalers on here, but obviously a lot of people doing it. So many different ways to make money in real estate. But let's start with your near-death experience that pushed you to kind of break free from your nine-to-five job. Talk us through that. Yeah. I uh, rolled back, I don't know, 23, 24 years. I, I had a day job. It was a couple of years out of college. I felt stuck. I felt stuck and I was miserable. Just didn't like it. Didn't like being told what to do. Didn't like the lack of opportunity. Didn't like the commute. Didn't like the people I worked with. Everything was wrong. And then I added up my debt one day. And Gary, I was in shock. I was 113 grand in the hole. And, you know, which was, that'd be even more now. I mean, then it was worth a, a bit more. And I went, Man, how do I get out of that without a gun or white powder? How do I pay off 113 grand in debt? Someone going to give me that kind of raise? And I didn't have an answer. So I did what most fiscally irresponsible people do, people who are so fiscally irresponsible to get into that degree of trouble. And I just escaped from it all. I took escape. I took my two weeks off and escaped on a, a big old adventure trip with my buddies to India for a couple of weeks and went whitewater rafting. I was loving it. It was fantastic until I went flying off of the raft, got sucked down into the river. We we're in India. And all I knew was I was just swallowing water and I had no air. But rather than be scared, I actually got kind of angry, angry at the situation I put myself in and not the raft, <laughs> not the literal drowning. It was the metaphor of drowning. Like, I'm drowning in all this debt. Nothing's right. What have I done? All I've done is, is get into financial trouble. I, if I get out of this, things are going to be different. And so obviously I got out of it. And here I am uh, today. I got out and I went, how are things going to be different? I don't know. I got home, didn't know. Now I had no time off left. I had a lot more debt. Things weren't going any better. And then uh, a friend handed me a copy of Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is uh, usually something most people in our space have read, and it's touched everyone in a different way. And it, it lit me up and got me thinking differently, 
But all I knew was I was supposed to go out and buy real estate to pay off my uh, debt. So I went out and bought a six unit building as my very first investment. And that was a massive mistake <laughs> because it, nobody was paying. It was in New York City, all very professional tenants that knew how to play the court system against their landlord, which was me. And I made a bad situation worse. I made my drowning in debt even worse. I had also touched off something that was liked being off my own. I liked having things be up to me. I liked being an entrepreneur. And once I got refocused on deals that made sense, then I never looked back. It's interesting that you made the change because you had to have a shock to the system, whether, you know, finding out about the debt and then the rafting trip. And for a lot of people, they need to be pushed to the edge to break out of that kind of contentment, that zone of comfort to really make a big change in their life. Yeah. I don't know what it is. There's something about those kinds of things that you, you don't want to go through them. You wouldn't want to go through them again. And yet you also wouldn't want to not have gone through it because it is it made you into who you are today. I work with a lot of students and it's almost like they don't come to me until they've been kicked in the teeth and beat down so hard by their work or by life or by whatever that they're finally ready to do something on their own. And that's an odd thing <laughs> in many ways, having to wait till somebody's you know been you know hit over the head before they'll take action. But sometimes that's what it takes. So how do you get investors to get past the fear and start taking action? Start get, you know getting started? Sometimes I do it purely by kind of a baptism by fire. I gotta get like let's just get you to face that fear now. And the fear is generally making a move, getting going, the fear of losing the money, but all wrapped up in that fear of talking to people. Well, if you're going to put together a real estate deal, and, and I don't care what exit strategy, residential, commercial, wholesale, rehab, it's all the same. You've got a market to find a deal, and then you've got negotiated into a deal. Well, talking to people, that's a big fear step for people. And so what I do is just push them to do it in a way that I don't want to say doesn't count, but it doesn't matter what happens. Like, let's just use some people for practice. If there's people that are, you know, saying for sale by owner, they want to be called. That's why they're advertising or that's why they put the sign out in front of the property. So call them in practice, they, like literally give up, not worrying about the outcome and just do it for the practice. A funny things happens, you know, that first time you're really afraid to pick up the phone. The second time you're still afraid. The third time you're less afraid, less afraid. Less, you know, on, and eventually you realize hey, I'm still alive. A couple of people got mad at me, but who cares? I'm still alive and everything's fine. And then the mental shift starts to take place. Now you're calling kind of with wild abandon. Now you're calling because you're hungry that, hey, one of these is going to turn into my first deal or my 10th deal or my 100th deal. So you just have to keep going. And that's when things change. Yeah, I think a lot of people are so scared of the nose. And I've been told no thousands and thousands of times in my life, probably just, you know, we were raising a deal at the end of last year, which was, you know, not the best time. And so many people said no, but eventually we get there. And it's not personal. It's it's nothing else. But you've got to get comfortable with that because, you know, you got to take the shot and you got to practice like anything in life. You've got to build up the reps. Uh, people think like, oh, you know, I'm going to go in and, and get it the first time. No, you're not. You're, you're not going to hit the shot the first time. You know, you know even <laughs> yeah, the best. Baseball players, the best baseball players only hit the ball 30% of the time. You know, they bat 300 is really good. And that's only 30% of the time. So, yeah. 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 Who is batting 400? Nobody. Yeah. You know, except maybe that one time, the first time you got there, you hit it. And that was a fluke. I think people don't recognize that. And that's, that's problematic. You kind of got to remember that. I mean, one way of summing up what you were saying is no one's going to tell you yes until you've been told no first. 
But so you have to persevere through the nose to get to that yes. So what is the number one thing stopping people from getting more deals? Is it that they're afraid of the nose or is it something else? I think it's largely being afraid of the nose, but combined with a lack of consistency. So if you're not consistently being told no, well, then no one's going to tell you yes. And that lack of consistency for being willing to reach out and talk to people usually ties into a lack of marketing. I won't do any marketing because if I did my marketing, someone's going to call me. And if they call me, I'm nervous and scared. You're almost preemptively making it so nobody contacts you. So I find that lack of consistency to be the, the number one thing stopping people. Yeah, absolutely. Or people get in, hey, it's not working. I'm out. Like this didn't work right, but you're not doing the work, you know? Anytime I have someone tell it to me, I really pointedly ask them, well, what have you done? How many times? How many letters did you send? How many phone calls did you make? How many offers did you make? When that answer is less than 10, and most of the time it's, you know, zero or one, I'm saying, well, no wonder it didn't work. It's not that it didn't work. It's that you didn't actually do the work to make it work. Yeah, I was talking to an investor last week and they're saying, well, how did you get comfortable doing your first deal? I'm like, I did well over a hundred reps. There was tons and tons of deals I didn't get, but I kept practicing my underwriting. I kept offering on deals. I kept studying deals and knew that eventually I, I'd get a deal and felt more comfortable because all the work that I've been doing for years, you know? You know, in some ways the answer is, I wasn't comfortable doing my first deal. Right. <laughs> you can't be. You're only going to get comfortable after you've done it enough times that you know what happened. So it's kind of, I always tell myself, I said, look, the first deal is magical, right? Nothing like the first time. It's a beautiful thing, right? It's just something very different. <laughs> but arguably more important is the second time. Because after the first time, there's that little tiny voice in the back of your head that says, nah, that was just luck. Lightning won't strike twice. You don't actually know what you're doing. You can't do that again. But then when you do, that little voice kind of gets quieted down. It gets told to shut up. And because lightning did strike twice, you did make it happen at the same time. So that's why it's important to keep going. And you definitely want that second deal, third deal, because then it just locks in. And you know you are in charge of this and you can do it. So what are three major screw-ups that can knock someone out of the business? Hmm. Three screw-ups. I'd start with no marketing, which is the classic thing that nobody has a business because they're not doing any marketing. It's fun and sexy and exciting to learn all the other stuff down the line, but you'll never get to do any of that if you don't get your marketing right at that beginning. I think the second thing I'd put on there is I'm going to tie it in with consistency. Let's kind of reframe it a little bit and call it repetition or multiplication. You've got to multiply your effort. I'm convinced that's actually the marketing secret is that you have to do it again and again. It's not enough to send one letter one time, or it's not enough to run one ad one time. People need to see it again and again and again. You need to reach out to them again and again and again. And that consistency, that repetition, that multiplication of your effort is what draws the people in. And then third thing, throws them out of whack. Worrying about all the other parts of the deal that don't matter yet. I guess another way of looking at that is worrying about all the bridges you need to cross. Therefore, you don't cross the bridge you're actually standing in front of. Just worry about the next step. One of my coaches said that to me years ago. I said, forget everything else. Deal with your next step. You take that next step in front of you, then you can worry about the next step. Otherwise, you know, you're worried about crossing bridge number seven or bridge number eight, but you haven't crossed bridge number one. You're never going to get there. So you can't let the fear of what's coming in the future hold you back now. And, uh, you know, I saw on your one sheet that you said goal setting is cheesy. So I'm curious, how do you set someone up for success? I'm curious where you were going with that. 
at the beginning of a year, people get really, oh, I have my New Year's resolutions. Here's all the things I'm going to do. Here's all the weight I'm going to lose, all the money I'm going to make, all the consistency I'm going to have. And then usually by the third week of January, nobody remembers it, what they promise, and they're certainly not doing it. So I think it's kind of a little cheesy to set those goals, particularly when they're always big, lofty goals. Like on a, they're on a board somewhere and you stare at this great image. I like to have my people do the exact opposite. Forget the big, lofty, ridiculous goals. Set a stupidly simple goal. And this is kind of, a, I guess it's a Japanese thing. Uh, you just set an absurdly easy goal and then achieve that. And then set another absurdly easy goal and achieve that and achieve that. And then you actually get kind of a head of steam up. You get some momentum and things going. So, you know, don't tell yourself you're going to call 200 people this week. Just call one because it's the very next step is picking up a phone, calling one of them. And then after that, call another and make it so you only call three this week. That's fine. That's an achievable goal. Where, you know, if I tell you to call 300, that's not achievable. It's too easy to get distracted. And I think sometimes the cheesy part of goal setting is these big lofty goals. They don't work. I think that the smaller goals actually can get you moving in the right direction and give you a feeling of success so that you can eventually achieve the big lofty goal. Yeah, I think it's important. You've got to start at the habits too. If you don't build the habits, you're not going to achieve the goal. So, if you know, and when you hit the goal, that feeling kind of like you're over it right away. So you've got to do the habits and celebrate those habits and the goals will come. Fall in love with the process yeah. and then you'll also get the result. Falling in love with the process is, is, is so hard. And sometimes I struggle with that. And I know many, many people out there do it, but the results will come. Absolutely. If, if you do the work consistently over over time, it will pay off. You know, my my dad had said something to me once. I, I think I asked him, this was classic kind of entrepreneur mindset. And I'm asking my dad, he was a, an architect and just, you know, worked as an architect all his life. And I said, don't you ever get bored of it? Don't you need to shake it up and change things up? And, you know, my dad was very stoic. And he goes, yeah, sometimes I did, son. I said, well, what'd you do, dad? What He goes, you just put your head down and do your work, boy. That's it. Just keep moving. I mean, it'll pass. And I always thought, Oh, it's really nice and simple for you, Dad, isn't it? Because it wasn't, I don't feel that way. I've got this kind of entrepreneurial stew pot kind of, you know, but that's just it. Get, fall in love with the process and do the process and you'll get to the deals. And luckily, I think from an entrepreneurial perspective and as a real estate investor, the deals change and the circumstances change. And so we can get that satisfaction of doing something different, even though we're effectively doing the same thing. So I like to think I've blended the best of both worlds and I try to keep my dad's advice in mind. Earlier on the show, you mentioned negotiating. And I know, you know, that's a big part of your business. So what are some of the negotiating tips that can make a huge difference? I teach 52 different techniques, but there's three of them that I use in pretty much every negotiation to get the ball rolling and start to get the price down. So the first one is I always flinch at a number, at any number anybody says to me. So if I said, Gary, say a number. 15 million. 15 million? Woo! Seriously? Now, how do you feel about your number now? Yeah, you're going to set the bar a little lower. Maybe yeah. you, you shot too high. Shot, yeah, so you're doubting your own number. Now, I don't know why. I didn't say give me a price on an apartment building or give me a price on a car or a boat. It just say a number. And you set a number, but you're already kind of questioning your number. That's what happens when somebody flinches at you. So every time you ask a seller or another investor for a price or a number, no matter what they say, whether it's a good or not, or pie in the sky or not, just flinch at it because you're already putting that thought in their mind that their number's not quite right and they're going to have to start to do better than that. All right, great. So then I come in with technique number two. Now, 
I have a target price in mind, as I'm sure you do when you're looking at a deal. You know what you got to get it at and maybe what that max is. Okay, well, I use a technique called bracketing to achieve that price. Now, a bracket surrounds something. So where do we tend to meet, Gary? Where's the most fair place to meet? In the middle. In the middle. Yeah, nothing more fair than meeting in the middle. You come halfway, I come halfway, we're all happy. So, okay, fine. Then what bracketing is, I'm engineering where the middle is. And I'm engineering the middle to be exactly where I need it to be. If I have, I don't know, $10 million, that's my maximum lawful offer. Well, I want to make that the middle. So if you said 15 million, I'm going to flinch (laughs) because you said a number, 15 million. But I'm going to come in about the same distance below the target price as you are above the target price. So if you're at 15, if my target price is 10, you're 5 million too high. So I've got to go 5 million lower. That way we're moving towards the middle. But here's the thing. I'm going to blend that in with the third technique is I would never just offer $5 million on that deal. But I would offer 5379000 because how does that number sound to you now? It sounds like you really put some thought into it and can't, you know, work some numbers and everything to to come up with that number. Yes, I, I put in a lot of time and effort, Gary. Isn't <laughs> I just spin that kind of 379 onto almost everything? 578, 379. It doesn't matter what the numbers are. It just matters that you make an offer with a specific number. Because if you said 15 million, I'm aiming for 10. If I just come in at five, I'm clearly just spitballing. But when I come in with something hyper exact like that, you know, five million three hundred seventy-nine thousand. Wow, that's kind of how you come up with that. And you are thinking that this guy is putting some time, effort, and thought into it. Now, the fact that I just pulled that number out of thin air doesn't matter. It doesn't come across as pulled out of thin air. It comes across as serious. So I want everyone to make offers with specificity because that's going to make your offers a lot more believable. Those three things will absolutely get the ball moving and get things changing in your favor as you go. So I start with those and then take it from there. Awesome. Well, Tom, I appreciate you coming on and adding a ton of value on wholesaling and how investors can build their business. Where can investors find out more about you and what you do? Go to TomZeeb.com. T-O-M, Z as in zebra, E-E-B as in boy.com. All right. Awesome. Well, this is Gary Lipsky signing off. I'll be back next week with another informative episode on the Real Estate Investor Podcast. To all of our listeners, thanks for joining us. And if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and like, subscribe, and leave a review as it will help us reach more people. And if you'd like to learn more about what we do at Break of Day Capital, Head over to our website at breakofdaycapital.com and sign up for our newsletter and fill out our investor application. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.